The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines. U.S. futures point higher, but Asian markets make a soft start to the new year with the Hang Seng under pressure. Despite global stocks closing out 2021 with double-digit gains for the third year in a row. France becomes the sixth country to report 10 million COVID cases as it eases restrictions and cuts isolation periods. But President Macron warns the coming weeks will remain difficult. Elsewhere, Tesla crushes its own delivery and production records in the fourth quarter, skirting supply woes to deliver almost one million vehicles over the year. And U.S. President Joe Biden reassures his Ukrainian counterpart that America will respond decisively if Russia invades. Morning, everybody. Happy New Year. I hope you've shook off your hangover and started your P&L at zero again this year. That's the tough bit, isn't it, everybody? But, but there are some things which are going to carry over well into 2022. And uh, Juliana and I are going to speak about a lot of those over the next two hours. One of them is the spectre of inflation. Now, we've talked a lot about this in Western markets and what bond markets are or aren't doing, what central banks are or aren't doing, what they've got to do, what that means for valuations. But if you're in one country, you've got a kind of different approach if you're the central bank to higher spectre of inflation, i.e. you're cutting rates because your president is telling you you've got to cut rates because the interest rates are the devil. Well, let me just tell you what Turkish central bank rates are being cut with a backdrop too. We have just had, sit down, I mean, these are staggering even by Turkey's standard. We have just had month on month, not year, month on month Turkish CPI, consumer price inflation of 13.6%. That's given us a mere 36.1% annual rate. That has blown past expectations, by the way, even though the retail sales figures we had inflation over the weekend were about 34%. So we've now got 36% year on year inflation in CPI. Is it going to abate? Um, Well, let's have a look at the PPI, which is often an interesting indicator. PPI in Turkey has just come in at 19.1% on the month. 19.1% increase uh, in cost. Well, that gives you an annualised figure, by the way, of 79.9%. Welcome to hyperinflation, everybody. We spend a lot of time on this channel saying it's not going to be like the 70s. It is going to be like the 70s. Well, I can tell you this is very much like the 70s for Turkey as well, which has, shall we say, an unorthodox policy. Now, let's just see what the lira is doing on the back of it. It had steadied a little bit, of course, in the week before Christmas. Last week, uh, it, it abated somewhat, but I can tell you it's barely moved from where we were beforehand. The market is so aware now of these huge inflationary impulses. I mean, yes, the dollar's putting on 
1.5%, but it was higher against the Turkish lira before these figures at one point this morning, 5% actually in total. Uh, against the euro, uh, the Turkish lira is losing about 2.9% as well. But quite extraordinary statistics. I mean, even for you lot out there who are you know, very, I don't know, immune to some of the big oscillations and the big numbers you see here on CNBC, but quite extraordinary. I'll just go through it one more time in case you missed me, in case you thought I was saying the wrong handle. 80% PPI inflation in Turkey uh, in the year to last year, uh, and your um, retail, your CPI inflation was 36.1%. There you go, Juliana. There's a lovely set of data, a very exciting set of data for us to start the year. Good morning to you. Happy New Year. I hope you haven't got a hangover. <laughs> Good morning, Steve. I think I'm okay right now. It was a tough weekend, though, um, and quite extraordinary numbers to start out the show. One of the big questions always with inflation like this, um, to what extent will it remain contained? Will it have an impact on other emerging markets and the way investors view um, currencies in other emerging markets? But we will discuss all of that in more detail later on the show. I want to now just get a check on U.S. markets, how we closed out the year. Uh, a little bit of a, a down day to end out 2021. But no major moves. Dow Jones ending about 16 basis points lower. S&P 500 down about a quarter of a percent. And the tech-heavy Nasdaq ending about six-tenths of a percent lower in the final day of trade for last year. But let's take a look at the year-to-date numbers because I think this is perhaps the, the more interesting story to, to bear in mind as we head into the new year. It was um, a very a solid year for all three major indices stateside. The Dow Jones ending about 19% higher. The S&P 500 about 27% higher. And the Nasdaq. NASDAQ about 21% higher. All sectors were positive for the year, led by energy up but nearly 50%. Utilities, the most offensive part of the market, was the key laggard, but still gaining about 14% for the year. Getting a check on Asian markets, we uh, do have a number of key markets in the region closed for holiday today, including Australia, mainland China, and Japan. But for the markets that are trading, we've got the Hang Seng on the back foot down about seven tenths of a percent. The Kospi down uh, up about 0.4% over in Korea, and the Nifty 50 up about 1.1%. Opening calls here in Europe. Uh, we've also got uh, limited trade due to take place today. But for the market set to open, we've got the DAX uh, indicating a marginally uh, higher start to the trading session. FTSE MIB over in Italy, similar. Uh, CAC 40 over in France looking at a modestly negative start to the trading session, but fairly muted moves indicated at this point. Steve? Thank you, Juliana. Right, I'm glad uh, you were over that tough weekend as well. Right, um, I've already messaged my best friends this year as well. And one of them is Salman Ahmed, who is a global head of macro and strategic asset allocation at Fidelity International. Salman, I'm wishing you the best 2022, my friend, and I'm wishing you and I to get to our favourite place a lot more in 2022. But that aside... That aside, I, I, I sense you're slightly nervous about these markets in 2022. You've got to remain neutral in your positioning to equities. Good morning to you, my friend. Why do you remain neutral in equities? Good morning and happy new year to you and, and, and your viewers, Steve. Uh, so on, on, the, on the market size, 2022, as we call it, is a, like a cash 22 type of situation for us. There are a number of policy dilemmas, and I think you already mentioned inflation as the, at the core of it. We talked about inflation a lot in 2021. I think we are going to be talking a lot more about inflation in 2022. And the reason we are neutral right now is that underneath the surface of the indices, there has been a lot of cracks which are appearing. So we have been focused on growth at a quality. But if you look at unprofitable techs, they have come under a lot of pressure. There's a lot of rotation going on as well. 
And going forward, given the issues with the virus, and more importantly, from a more longevity perspective, uh, the fact that we are going to see cost of money going up, tightening of, uh, of central bank policies, we think that after three years, very strong run in equity markets, this is the time to take a little bit of a pause and see where things pan out. Certainly, volatility and risk are likely to go up as we move into 2022. Yeah, there's a great phrase, and I've, I've temporarily forgotten who said it, but it's when the tide goes out, you see who's been swimming naked. And I love that phrase. And it's, 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 it's a stunning view for our viewers this morning, first thing, when they're eating their breakfast. But the point being is when that cost of money goes higher as well, we're going to see where the real problems potentially lie in the markets. But having said that, there are many advocates out there, Salman, and you know this is better than I do, who actually think we're going to enter a sweet spot uh, when rates are going to be rising, but economic activity is going to continue at quite a pace as well. Why aren't we entering a sweet spot for equities? So right now, I think from an economic perspective, there are two major forces of re-reflation, if you will, which we think can play out. And I think that plays uh, to that point you're mentioning, Steve. The one is, uh, is, is very depressed level of inventories. So we need to have a proper production cycle for uh, inventories to normalize. And the other one is the excess savings sitting in the system due to the thanks to the fiscal policy stimulus, which have been uh, happening for uh, since uh, since the lockdowns happened in March 2020. So those are two major sources of re-reflation. I think why we are concerned about from a, a little bit from a, a longer perspective on equities right now is that the uh, the real rate picture. So as long as real rates remain negative and central banks are able to manage that reality. We think equities can get supported, but the the moment that reality comes under pressure, uh, uh, I think the, the linkage between equity markets and the econo economy will start to weaken because that negative real rate has been a major source of asset demand for equities. And that's why we want to take our time to see how this thing pans out. And if central banks are still able to manage a comfortable tightening cycle, we would uh, re-engage with equities, but we are right now uh, in, a, in a wait and see mode. And just to back on what I said, of course, it was the great Warren Buffett. I've already managed to get him in the first nine minutes of the show. Only when the tide goes out do you discover who's been swimming naked. What a great quote from a great man. Juliana, sorry. Steve, I think that is a, a quite an apt quote to start the year. Um, Simon, I would just pick up um, within um, your, your regional views. I see here that you've reduced the UK from neutral to underweight. What makes you more downbeat on UK assets relative to other parts of the world? So certainly, I think UK has one of these major attractions is that it's a value market, uh, and 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 it, it's quite a strong, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, value versus the de different developed markets right now. However, we think that the economic growth is going to come under pressure because of what's happening with the virus, the retrenchment of fiscal policy. So there is this view towards the uh, the mid cap side of of the market. Of course, for FTSE 100, which is much more international, and then of course the uh, uh, the uh, the exposure to commodity prices as well, it means it can have its own dynamics, but really on the mid-cap side of things, which are much more exposed to domestic demand, that's where we are a bit more cautious. And of course, let's not forget the Bank of England is one of the more hawkish central banks, and it's likely to remain quite hawkish going forward uh, as inflation surges uh, in, in the UK. So that's the reason why after many, many months of, of being long UK equities, we have adopted a more 
cautious stance uh, from a regional uh, diversification perspective. On the other side of the spectrum, we've got the ECB, perhaps the most dovish of the major uh, de- developed market central banks. Uh, how do you think Europe is positioned um, for 2022? Well, that's one central banks which uh, is still uh, uh, opposing the tide, uh, which Mr. Warren Buffett mentioned, and it has been doing that quite uh, aggressively now. Uh, so we have commitments that uh, from the ECB uh, that they will not be hiking rates anytime soon. Uh, of course, there is much going to be much more QE, but it's going to come down uh, in its pace. But it's a clear cut difference from uh, uh, from other central banks, especially uh, given the inflationary dynamics in the in the eurozone are also quite strong. So I think that's where uh, those uh, those forces come into play. It's clearly a, a more dovish central bank, and that's where we think it will play out in the currency for the next few months, where we think dollar can still do quite well given the differentiation between the two uh, central banks, i.e. Fed, which becomes uh, increasingly more hawkish, whilst the ECB, because they have to focus on on the periphery spreads as well, uh, despite the fact that they are inflation targeter, uh, that's where the differentiation, our view, comes through. Salman, it was a glacial progress to the upside for the dollar and the dollar index last year, putting on between 6 and 7%, depending on where you look on your, on your means as well. Uh, more of the same, I think you're calling in 2022, but the ramifications for the rest of the world for higher dollar cost funding. Uh, last year was a quite a interesting year that uh, despite the rally in, uh, in risk, if you will, even though there was a lot of dispersion within countries, within sectors, uh, the dollar appreciation didn't hurt uh, financial conditions. And, and, and that's a lot to do with, obviously, uh, the, the liquidity surges we have been seeing. I think this year we are thinking that this dollar uh, uh, appreciation can continue because of the central bank diversification, uh, central bank uh, uh, tightening in policies, especially led by the Fed. But this, this time we will be much more careful. And that's one of the another reason why we are a bit, a bit more cautious on on risk right now, because we do want, uh, want to see if these new correlations, which have started to come into shape, do settle down or not, or is this just a temporary uh, phase we saw in 2021, or is it going to be back to normal where dollar rally is actually problematic for for global risk taking. Although having said that, we did see pressure on emerging markets uh, coming through because of this uh, uh, this dollar appreciation which may is another factor we will be considering going forward in 2022. Uh, Salman, we'll leave it there. Thank you for joining us, the first guest of the new year. Salman Ahmed, Global Head of Macro and Strategic Asset Allocation at Fidelity International. Shares in troubled Chinese firm Evergrande are suspended ahead of a release of what is described as inside information. It also comes after Chinese media reported it would be forced to demolish a development in the southern province of Henan. The property developer has tens of billions of dollars worth of foreign bonds currently in cross default after missing multiple payment deadlines. Evergrande has more than $300 billion in total liabilities. Coming up on the show, chaos continues this travel season as wild weather and Omicron-related staff shortages scrub over 4,000 flights from schedules. And for more on the global inflation picture, including those runaway Turkish numbers, yes, they were runaway, 14% higher on inflation in December, 36% on the year, huge figures. You can check out the Squawk Box podcast.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Uh, Welcome back, everybody. One thing is very clear, isn't it, that uh, COVID-19 is still very much with us around the globe. And there were people, of course, at the start of last year or the year before that even, who very much hoped it would be done and dusted in 2021. I'm afraid that is not the case yet. A deepening outbreak in the Chinese city of Xi'an saw China post its highest daily tally of local COVID cases since the beginning of the pandemic. 122 new infections were reported in the city on Sunday, although that was down from the previous day. Uh, highs not seen since March 2020. Now, residents in locked down Xi'an said this week they were struggling to find enough food and local officials have asked residents to exercise understanding and tolerance as they try to manage supplies. Elsewhere, it's been estimated that over four thousand flights were disrupted worldwide over the new year weekend in the u.s more than two thousand flights were cancelled on new year's day as airlines battled a surge in uh, staffing shortages southwest was the airline that uh, suffered the worst had to cancel 450 flights nationwide 13 percent of its flight schedule airlines say they are taking steps to reduce cancellations with united offering to pay pilots triple or more of their usual wages for picking up open flights through most of January. Uh, UK Prime Minister on this side of the Atlantic, Boris Johnson, has asked ministers to draw up robust contingency plans for workplace absences. The UK reported 137,000 new COVID cases on Sunday, despite a 12th straight day of more than 100 thousand cases. The UK Health Minister, uh, well, Secretary actually, uh, Sajid Javid, says current measures are enough to stave off new restrictions. Juliana. France has become the sixth country worldwide to reach 10 million COVID infections since the beginning of the pandemic. This after authorities recorded more than 200,000 new cases for the fourth consecutive day. Let's get out to Charlotte, who joins us now with the latest on what's happening in France. Um, Charlotte, uh, a number of new measures have been announced or changes rather to policy in France, including uh, a cut to the uh, isolation period. And this is particularly interesting given the changes we've seen here in the UK and in the US. So bring us up to speed on what's happening over in France. Yes, good morning, Juliana. Well, while the country was already still dealing with a Delta wave, the Omicron wave hit the country as well. And President Macron announced in his New Year's address last week that tough weeks come ahead. As as you said, more than 200,000 cases for several days in a row was announced in the country. And as you say, what they say for the pressure in hospital at the moment is not too bad. It's still manageable. Of course, I have to wait another week to see the impact of those 200,000 cases a day in hospital. But they say for the moment is manageable. And given the, the, the data that they have from other countries, they hope Hope it will remain so. But what they're worried about now is because of the sheer number of people being ill at the moment, that the disruptions to the economy, to public services, to transport, even to health workers. So they have changed these rules of isolation, try to manage it and try to mitigate the impact of uh, the, the virus at the moment. So cutting down the isolation period to seven days from 10 previously, and it could be five days if people test negative already and have no symptoms. Of course, I try to keep people in work at the moment. That comes on top of other measures that have been announced 
announced in the past week by the government, including reinstating outdoor masks in some region, including to this, uh, from six years old upwards, even from 11 years old before, but now children from six will be required to wear some masks in some public areas in other country. Also, the reduced number of people that can attend some events indoors and outdoors. It will be 2,000 indoors, 5,000 outdoors. Work from home is mandatory, minimum three days a week when uh, the jobs allowed to do so. And of course, the health pass has been one of the key tools from the country to deal with the, the several waves of the virus have come today. The, it's debated in Parliament to turn this health pass into a vaccine pass. That basically will mean that it will turn into a sort of super green pass that we already see in Italy, which means that the negative test that is uh, valid at the moment to get a health pass to go into these public venues like restaurants, but museums, cinemas. Now a negative test will not be enough. Only a vaccination status will allow you to access those public areas. So the Parliament will debate this uh, from today then they hope to bring this early to bring this earlier than later of course this tool has been crucial in France to bring more people to get vaccinated now you have 90% of the population that is uh, double vax and 40% boosted they hope to get as many people boosted uh, as soon as possible so while these measures are coming to place most of the economy is still open to kind of some European countries the government is gambling that this will be enough to tackle this Omicron wave of course the, the Macron government is very uh, not keen to put more measures into place just less than four months before the next presidential election. They hope that this will be enough and with the schools reopening today, the next few weeks will be crucial. Guys. Charlotte, um, thank you so much for breaking it all down for us. Um, to take the conversation further, let me welcome Danny Altman to the program, professor of immunology at Imperial College London. Um, Danny, um, thank you for, for joining us once again this morning. Um, so looking around the world, we're now seeing a number of countries shorten the isolation period for those infected with COVID-19. The CDC over in the U.S. has received a ton of criticism from the medical community for shortening the isolation rules, but not uh, requiring a negative test in doing so. Uh, what is your read and, and, and what's your take on whether this is the right move um, from the CDC and from other governments around the world? Well, you know, as you'd expect, I look at this from my side of the fence, from immunology and virology, from where it looks like um, quite a tough balancing act, quite a tough gamble, because, um, um, you know, you need to look at the hard data about the proportion of people who will still be positive um, um, beyond seven or eight or nine or ten days and, and still be symptomatic beyond that period. And so, it's, you know, it's a very, very tough balancing act, um, not without risk. One of the big questions right now, um, my understanding, is what happens to the Delta variant and the Delta wave um, in parallel to what happens with the Omicron variant? Um, based on the data you've seen, is immunity um, garnered from the Omicron variant going to provide protection against the Delta variant? And where are we going to be left when the Omicron wave peaks? Yeah, so I think it's um, it's kind of complex immunology and a complex work in progress. So at the beginning, I think many of us felt a little bit bleak that all we'd done was to take um, a ghastly delta um, wave that we hadn't dealt with and superimpose on top of it a much larger Omicron wave that we also couldn't deal with. And now we're starting to see, I think, some data that the antibodies induced by you know the so-called milder infection with Omicron can protect against delta. And that would help to have Omicron displace delta and, and move us along a little bit. So that's a kind of work in progress. 
Danny, you may feel bleak, but you never actually manage to sound that bleak, and you always give us a, a fairly upbeat message, so I appreciate that. Happy New Year, by the way, Dan. Dan, look, uh, the, the mixtures of flu plus corona, the Israelis are, are finding some very interesting stuff there. Florona, I think. Uh, Delmicron, of course, a de mix of Delta and Omicron as well. We're going to see more and more variants. Are you hopeful, given what you just said, actually, that there will be this some form of uh, mythical herd immunity building up for those of us that have had coronavirus uh, and actually creating a situation where we're not going to have this oscillation between shutdowns and lockdowns and huge, uh, huge cases across the world. Are you more optimistic now that the new variants will be able to cope with them better? I'm, I'm a tiny bit optimistic in, in terms of a kind of, you know, slow creeping incremental exit strategy. Um, uh, you know, we've got to be so fleet of foot, haven't we, in terms of constantly reappraising where we're headed, because it's 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 non-trivial, um, and not least because the term herd immunity has been so misunderstood and abused, and we know from you know decades, centuries of the common cold that immunity to these things is very fleeting, it's very ephemeral, it, you know, it, does, it doesn't last. Um, but I think if we can get all the things we're doing at the moment sorted out and get our vaccination rates up and get our boosting rates up, um, I, think, um, I think 2022 can look better than 2021. But, Dan, um, we've heard a lot of criticism from the WHO, I, I think probably very justified, that until the rest of the world, the developing world, the emerging world, gets the same kind of access to vaccinations that the developed world has got, we're going to carry on seeing these variants. We're going to carry on seeing problems as well. Is that still a justified criticism, that the world needs to look at the, 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 the perhaps poorer nations and pile enough money into those countries and enough vaccinations into those countries before we're going to be safe from this? I, I can't emphasize sufficiently there's no escaping that logic this isn't um altruism or or um aid or anything this is the global escape strategy from something that we're all suffering together and as you say um unless we can share out the vaccines and produce enough vaccines for everybody um the next variant is just around the corner Danny, when it comes to the vaccines that we have, um, what is your expectation around um, the vaccines we'll be using in the future? Do you see us getting boosted with the same vaccines we have, or are we likely to move to a new variation of the vaccines, whether it be an Omicron-specific one or a multivalent vaccine? Well, you know, I've, I've spent my whole life in immunology, and I see all the kind of goodies on, on the shelf ready to go and feel that the first generation of vaccines we've had have, have done amazingly at getting us out of trouble. But there are, there are probably many better, more durable solutions out there. And now we need to take a deep breath and have a look at those other options and at, at more durable solutions. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.